Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Miketz. This week, I also want to tell you about the summer learning seminar at Pardes in Jerusalem. The topic this year will be Who Am I? The Complexity of Identity in the 21st Century. The learning seminar is designed especially for you as a listener of the podcast. So check out all the details on the Pardes website. That's pardes.org.il. Look under the programs page and then you'll see the learning seminars. And there's a special 15% discount if you sign up before January 1st. So please check out all the details. This week, we Kate's with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike Foyer is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Mike Foyer. So we're deep in the stories of Yosef at this point. And right now, I want to get to the bottom of a very particular question of his transformation from pipsqueak little brother to Yosef HaTzadik, to Joseph the Righteous. And he isn't just, of course, personally a guide to righteousness, but he ends up being an embodiment of a model which is critical for the whole world. After all, we say, Tzadik Yisod Olam, that the Tzadik is the foundation of creation. And I'm not just interested in this as the abstract. As a counselor, someone who does spiritual counseling and is always looking to help people to master their story, to free themselves from the narrative traps that so often confine us and keep us stuck in a place that we have no desire of being, I want to know, how was it that Yosef, in our story, this week, right at the beginning, is so ready for success? Don't forget, we left him last week in a pretty bad state. He'd been beat up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. And then, just as he's rising to the top of at least that position, he has a Me Too moment and gets chucked back into the pit once again. And there, at the end of last week's Parsha, he grasps at a straw of hope. When suddenly he finds that Pharaoh's cupbearer is his cellmate. And after interpreting his dream, I'm sure you read the Parsha, he says, Think of me. Think of me when all is well with you again and do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh so as to free me from this place. Oh, a moment of light only to be forgotten and left in the dark for two more years. So how is it that we can understand the events at the beginning of our Parsha where suddenly he's whisked into the presence of Paro and becomes an overnight triumph, second in the kingdom? I'm sure you know this story. It says in Bereshit 41, lines 14 through 16, Paro sends for Joseph. He was rushed from the dungeon. He had his hair cut, changed his clothes, and appeared before Paro. And Paro said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. Now, I've heard it said of you that for you to hear a dream is to tell its meaning. And Joseph answers Paro saying, Biladai, not me. God will see to Pharaoh's welfare. It's an astounding story. And I really have two questions. First of all, like I said, how is Yosef so ready to succeed after so many crushing experiences? I mean, you heard the pace. He's pulled out of the pit. It's been 10 years or more, perhaps 12 if I'm not miscounting. And shaving a haircut, new clothes, boom, you're in front of the king. And he's ready. So that's one question. He doesn't even surprise, by the way. He doesn't seem surprised when they pull him out. And the other question I have, which is, how do we understand his answer to Paro when Paro says, now I've heard it said of you that to hear a dream is to tell its meaning. He says, it's not me. I mean, after all, that was quite a risk. 
Remember, Power was going out on a big limb by listening to his recently disgraced cupbearer to begin with that there's some Hebrew slave who can help him interpret these dreams of cows and corn that he seems to be having. And, of course, particularly within Egyptian society at the time, it's well beneath the royal dignity to even speak to a slave, much less seek his assistance. I think, really, the wise thing to say in response to Power's statement, I've heard it said, that for you to hear a dream is to tell its meaning. It seems to be, yep, that's right. That's me. I'm your guy. I mean, Yosef, frankly, can tell him about God later. He can even tell him about God in a moment just by reversing his statement. It'll still be fittingly humble and from. God will see the power's welfare. Not I. But the first thing is, not I? How do we understand that? So let's start actually with that second question first. Why start his statement to borrow with self-effacement? How is it that it seems that the hand of God itself reached down into the pit and pulled Joseph out, and still he doesn't see it as anything about him? So in order to understand, we actually have to look a little more closely at Yosef's final test, that event that occurred at the end of last week's partial. Like I said, right, Yosef says to Pharaoh's cupbearer, that Pharaoh will pardon you and restore your post. You will place Pharaoh's cup in his hands as was your custom formerly when you were his cupbearer. But think of me when all is well with you again and do me the kindness of mention me to Pharaoh so as to free me from this place. It's an event which doesn't happen, of course, because we see in the Midrash Tanhuma, Yosef should have only been in prison for 10 years. So why then does he stay for 12 Ah, Amar Kodesh Bochu, God says, right? You abandon your trust in me, in God, and place your trust in this cupbearer who you asked twice to remember you, right? Right? Don't forget. Remember me. Mention me. So I'll add two more years to your time in prison. It seems to be an awfully harsh divine judgment to keep in prison for two more years just because he asked the butler for help. I mean, after all, why shouldn't Yosef actually think it was divine invention that intervention that brought the compare there in the first place? I mean, frankly, what are the odds? You're alone in prison. You think everything's lost forever. And suddenly the minister of agriculture is there in your cell. Who could blame him? for grasping at the chance to actually get out of the dungeon. Maybe, in fact, that's what God wants. We all know the old joke about the guy who's facing the flood, and he they send a boat, and he says, no, I'll trust in God. And then they send another boat, I'll trust in God. I send a helicopter, I'll trust in God. Finally, he drowns when he gets up into heaven. He says to God, I trusted so much in you. And God says, yeah, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. So why shouldn't Yosef think that the cupbearer is indeed God's act of intervention to save him from the dungeon. Who could blame him? Well, I think that the Gilui Milta, the really revealing point of that story, is what Yosef actually says after he begs the cupbearer to, not to forget him. He says, For in truth, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, nor have I done anything here that they should have put me in dungeon. And it's really that the Gampo. The gum that gets me. And here, meaning I didn't do anything there when my brothers sold me into slavery, and I didn't do anything here. Really, Yosef? You haven't done anything at all to deserve being in the pit? Not the first time when your brothers threw there because you were a tattletale and daddy's favorite? Or the second when, as the Midrash says, he began to eat and drink and curl his hair, whereupon the Holy One rebuked him, saying, Your father's mourning for you in sackcloth. You eat and drink and curl your hair. Therefore, your mistress will impose herself on you and will torment you. 
Really? He didn't do anything either time? I think that's the problem that we are left with at the end of last week's Parsha. After all his suffering, Yosef wasn't ready to take extreme ownership. He wasn't quite able to recognize that everything which had happened to him was his responsibility. And even though I make a distinction between responsibility and fault, in fact, some of it was also his fault. You know, I think it's just an odd fact of life that divine intervention may come to all of us at some point, but it only has the potential to transform us into a more righteous version of ourselves if it comes after we've taken responsibility for our lives. Just think about it. If Yosef had persisted in thinking that he had done nothing to deserve being in the pit, then it's likely that if God had saved him, he simply would have ended up there a third time because he never did anything to get there. And of course he deserved to be out. He wouldn't have been forced to face the essential flaws in his character, the failure of his relationship with his brothers, the sense of overinflated selfhood that had led him to curl his hair and forget about his father's mourning and led him into the trap of relationship with Potiphar's wife. And so we can assume that there simply would have been a third round of suffering because God wasn't going to give up on him learning the lesson. And so he had to take extreme ownership. But you know, there's a flip side to that. Extreme ownership isn't enough because if it goes too far, it becomes itself egoism. After all, the flawed version of taking responsibility for everything in my life is it was my power and the strength of my hand that made all this happen. And so Yosef sat in the dark for another two years. He sat and he thought about everything which had gotten him there the first time and the second And he thought about how when God wanted, God would remove him. Not really because he necessarily deserved it, because God willed and he was ready. And now we can understand his response to Paro. When Paro says, now I've heard it said of you that for you to hear a dream is to tell its meaning, Yosef says, not I. That's the only answer he can give at that point. He has to leave the space open Even if it means that God will send him back into the pit a third time, he has to accept the fact that this is not about him. That actually, he has only one trust, and that's the trust in God. But that type of self-effacement also can easily lead to what we call religious fatalism. Well, if it's all about God, then why would Yosef ever do anything? So that leads us to ask once again, Our second question, how was it that Yosef was so ready to succeed after so many crushing experiences? And furthermore, how does, now we can understand, how does that sort of desire for success not contradict the very deep message that he only has God to trust in and not himself? He take radical responsibility, but you trust in God. Well, part of the answer is that Yosef doesn't just explain Paro, the divine message in his dream, he gives a game plan of how to make those dreams work for him. You know, after you get the description, the second telling of the cows and the corn and the seven years of fat and the seven years of famine, he says, let Paro find a man of discernment and wisdom. Let him set and set him over the land of Egypt. Let all the food of those good years that are coming be gathered. Let that food be a reserve for the land so the land may not perish in the famine. And of course, if you've read the Parsha, you know that the advice is so good so obvious in the interest of everyone there, right? That Paro has another moment of divine revelation. It says, right? Paro says to his servants, 
הנמצא כזה איש, אשר רוח אלוהים בו, we ever going to find another person like this, who, within whom the divine spirit dwells? So what was the secret to Yosef's success? How was Paro so easily able to see the divine spirit within him? Well, I'll tell you this, that that moment of self-effacement, that culmination of the crushing experience of being in the pit, not just once, but twice, of realizing that he had ruined his family relations, that he had forgotten the pain of his father and almost given in to a superficial materialistic life, led him to realize that there was a core self within. There was a dream he carried, which was actually bigger than even he, a dream that never died, that remained untouched beneath the crushing difficulties of the beatings, the slavery, the imprisonment, the temptation. Remember, from the earliest age, as much as we have a tendency, having watched the movie, to think of Yosef as the bratty little brother, but really, from the earliest age, his father had instilled in him a sense of his precious, unique nature. Yaakov's failure might have been that he didn't do that for all his children, but it doesn't mean it wasn't important what he gave to Yosef. And furthermore, God had given him dreams of his great destiny. Now, Yosef, in his immaturity, was unable to, let's say, manage that well vis-a-vis his brothers, but it doesn't mean that wasn't a great gift from God, that he was instilled with the sense of the greatness that lay ahead. And in a sense, in that sense, Yosef actually becomes the model for Am Yisrael in exile. You know, for the Jewish people in their struggle to go forward, as it says in the Midrash, all the troubles which happened to Yosef happened to Zion, and so too all of the good things. You know, I teach Jewish history. Some of you actually may be a listener to the Jewish story. If not, by the way, you can just plug the Jewish story in there at El Mater in your Google, and you'll find my story of the Jewish history. But one of the themes that I have contemplated for quite some time is how is it that wherever you plunk the Jews down, we rise to success? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that say the massive wave of immigrants fleeing Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century to North America should have become a permanent underclass. Or the Jews who were crushed during the Middle Ages and flowed over in early modernity into Poland should have simply become peasants, or the exiles from Spain, broken after a hundred years of religious and physical suffering, scattered to the four winds, should have simply disappeared. But instead, in all three cases, they rise to the top. And I can tell you why. It's exactly the story of Yosef, that within them all is a story of success is a belief in our own precious nature and a dream that we carry which is bigger than we are and that we have an obligation, therefore, to fulfill. You know, it's more than just a historiosophy. This is a critical lesson to all the parents and educators, frankly, all the caring human beings out there. The greatest thing we can do for our children, our students, our loved ones is to give them a dream. To help from the earliest age to instill a seed of precious selfhood that will survive under all the dirt that life is going to throw at it. And not just survive, by the way, but thrive and grow. Because now I think we can put the pieces together toward understanding how Yosef, the annoying little brother, becomes Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous, and how his model is indeed a foundation for the world. It was by striking a balance between self-effacement and extreme ownership, by realizing that everything was in his hands, but it was not all about 
him, that his job was to make God's dream real in the world. Now, we don't have time at this moment, but I'll give it to you as homework. Knowing now the process, at least in the outlines, which Yosef underwent in order to become the righteous version of himself, and knowing also that the Midrash tells us this is a process that functions not just on the personal, but on the national level, watch carefully the game that Yosef plays going forward over the rest of this Parsha and the next with his brothers. Watch how step by step he coaxes them to take responsibility for what they've done to him. He recreates a situation with his brother Benjamin, which basically puts them back exactly where they were when they beat up Yosef and threw him in the pit. And when they finally actually say it's because of what we've done to our brother that all these things have come upon us. And he reveals himself to them, thinking that they're now going to have to, or they think, rather, that they're going to have to take full responsibility and bear the price. What does he say? How does he comfort them? He says, Now, don't be distressed or reproach yourselves for everything that came before, even though he's actually brought about the situation in which they've taken responsibility. But why shouldn't they be distressed or reproach themselves? Ah, because it was God who sent me before you to save all of our lives. And so, in his righteousness, he's able to bring others to their righteous selves as well. May we all be so blessed. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Foyer. Thanks for tuning in. Hanukkah Sameach. And we'll see you on the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem. Thank you.